either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Oh, movies making news headlines this week. Ooh, so scandalous and uh, a whole lot more to talk about. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we're from madwolf.com. Let's just dive right in. It's a follow-up film to the 2006 comedy centering on the real-life adventures of a fictional Kazakhstan television journalist named Borat. This is subsequent movie film. Fourteen years ago, I released movie film which brought great shame to Kazakhstan. But now I was instructed to return to Yankee land to carry out secret mission. I'm here to give my daughter as a gift to someone close to the throne. I need dress with real sexy peels. Uh, this is a bag that just goes mm, over the dress. Very nice. I really like this. And while the risk of coronavirus remains low, as the president said yesterday, we're ready for anything. Michael Penis! I brought the girl for you. You fist me. Right. Now I fist you. Right. There you what go. do you prefer? You fist me or I fist you? Same time. Fist each other. There, yeah. you, go. there you go. Okay, let's be specific. It's actually called Subsequent Movie Film colon, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Uh, but that It's a is, mouthful. It is a mouthful. <laughs> All right, you've seen this in the headlines because of the compromising position that Rudy Giuliani got himself in. That he is sure did. Clearly in this movie. And we'll, we'll get to that, but it's been 14 years yeah. since the first Borat movie, which was hilarious. Yes. And uh, so now he's back in uh, in with uh, with a continuing story. Sasha Baron Cohen, of course. This is his baby. And Borat, last time out, brought shame to his country, so he was yes, put he in jail, sentenced to life of hard labor. But now he has a chance at redemption chance to get out, and they need to, since, in their view, the American president is fond of dictatorships. How'd they get that idea? <laughs> they want to get on, on, on Trump's, in the Trump's strongman club by giving him a gift, giving the administration a gift. So they decide the best gift. Well, first, the gift is a porn star monkey, but we won't get into no, that. No, let's not. Uh, but it becomes <laughs> Borat's 15-year-old daughter, known as Tutar. She's actually played by a 24-year-old uh, Bulgarian actress. Named, Thank God. Yeah, <laughs> named uh, Maria Baklova, Bakalova, who's almost Cohen's equal in keeping a straight face. Oh, yes. Yeah. She's great. And you'd have to be yeah. because otherwise you blow. I mean, you know, they're, it's not like they're set up scenes and you can do additional takes. I know. Yeah, but she's she's remarkable at keeping a straight I mean, face obviously and staying they're in character. Both just shameless as they go about <laughs> about these antics. And uh, so anyway, in the story, so they both head off to America and then it becomes pretty much a, a, a road trip, a yes, road movie. Absolutely. It's just these staged pranks and staged hijinks on the way to attempting to give the gift of the daughter to Pence, which they try to do right in the middle of one of his speeches, which is crazy. Yeah. And then that doesn't go so well, so then the target becomes Giuliani. And Works uh, a lot better. <laughs> they get a lot farther. They do. I mean, back in July when this happened, there was a little bit of a headline because Giuliani was all proud of the fact that, you know, he called the cops on Cohen and, Boy, you know, I'm a fan of his movies, but he didn't get me. Boy, he didn't get me. Oh, oh yes, yeah. he did. <laughs> so, but that—that that is just part of it. I mean, this is a movie that gets 
if you saw the first Borat, you'd know. It gets incredibly awkward, as you can judge by the amount of times that Hope turned her face away. And, I left the room. And even left the room. I left the room more than once. <laughs> I did. It's, it's, you know, it's that kind of comedy that just makes you just, I mean, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And for me, quite frequently unwatchable. Yeah. And again, the target is the breeding grounds for bigotry yep. and misogyny and hate and, of course, anti-Semitism. <laughs> And they go through a lot of those types of uh, situations where they go to a, a pregnancy center, uh, even in a bakery. Uh, you have a, 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 an awkward encounter with a woman oh, yes. uh, decorating a cake. And then they go to a, like a tea party rally and back to the the uh, house with these two QAnon guys, these guys. two good old boys. They're all about QAnon and, and on and on and on it goes until, of course, they reach uh, Giuliani. So he makes a lot of points that way but the one of the big things that has changed in those 14 years is that america is a different country now yeah and, we wear our hate on our sleeves yes. now i mean he had to do at least a little bit of work last time to find it not right. now you got to do work not to find it yeah it's still very funny but at the same time it's tinged with some sadness because he's not he's not peeling away layers anymore no he's it's not right there and i think because of that i'm guessing it's because of that that uh, Cohen and uh, f the first-time director here is uh, Jason Wallenar, who's done a lot of TV, but this is his first directing effort. They do a, a, a subtle pivot. There's a couple of different sequences where there's actually some some touching humanity yeah. that comes out. Mm -hmm. And you might be tempted to say, well, he's, he's going soft. I don't think so. No, I don't think so at no. all. It's just a reminder that, look at this, in the middle of all this ugliness, there's actually still some hope yeah. for humanity. And I did appreciate those uh, those couple of segments. And, of course, the Giuliani thing, I'm not going to go into it except see for yourself. I yeah. mean, he is trying to make some some defense of his conduct, but it's it's a bad look. Yes, it is. It's a bad look. It is a bad look. And um, judge for yourself. But I found it very funny. Now, I also like that early on when Borat comes back to America, there's some <laughs> there's some. Uh, footage of Americans really recognizing him on the street. Yeah, and chasing after yeah, him. Borat, because Borat. They would. You absolutely would. And in fact, he then he realizes he has to buy disguises. Yeah. So he goes to some Halloween stores, <laughs> and of course there are Borat costumes <laughs> that you can wear. <laughs> yeah. That of course not called Borat. They're right. called something else, but it's clearly Foreign him. Foreign reporter. Right. Yeah. Foreign reporter. Um, and, and it is. I mean, it sets up, first of all, it had to happen, like you said. I mean, yeah, there'd be no way for him to actually accomplish the same thing because he's so recognizable. And it's a nice acknowledgement that we have seen before. Right. And, and so that and it sets up some other really funny costumes it because does. the first thing he does, he buys a great big fat suit and then he <laughs> wears that underneath of other costumes. <laughs> and, it, and he's got a couple of great aliases. One is uh, John Chevrolet. John Chevrolet. <laughs> Cliff Safari is another one. <laughs> so pay attention to those aliases. So if you like, you know, if you like Borat's antics, you're going to like this movie. If it's not your thing, then obviously you're going to avoid it. I, I thought it was hilarious. Yes. Made you some... know, it's it's uncommon, I think, for a sequel to do uh, the same shtick as well right. as this. And it really, really did. Yeah. And it's smart and uh, it gets in its points and all that Giuliani thing. So uh, it is streaming now on Amazon. Amazon. And that is Borat. I'm not going to say the whole title. Borat subsequent movie film. Next is a remake of a classic film. A young newlywed arrives at her husband's imposing family estate on a windswept English coast, finds herself battling the shadow of his first wife, whose legacy lives on in the house long after her death. It's Rebecca. You can talk to me about her. I have no secrets from you. All marriages have their secrets.
Has Max ever talked to you about the accident? I don't know what you're talking about. How am I supposed to know anything if you don't tell me? She's still here. Can you feel her? I'm tossing and turning all night. She was the love of his life. I wonder what she's thinking about you. Taking her husband, using her name. He doesn't love you. I said I want the truth. You didn't know her. You know what he did. This is, of course, a remake of a Hitchcock. Those are big shoes to fill. Really are. Anytime you're going to take on take on Hitchcock, man, I give you credit for trying it, number yeah, one. Yeah. But when you look at the director, it's Ben Wheatley. We love him. And you look at his resume and you think, okay, yeah. I can see there's there's a possibility here for some edge, yeah. maybe a little sly wit yeah. to give it, a, give it a, a new vision. You know, I don't think uh, Ben Wheatley is a name that's that, he's not really, a, he is not really a household name, at least as of yet. So if you're not familiar with Ben Wheatley, whether you watch and like Rebecca or not, I recommend that you look up a couple of his movies, Kill List in particular, which yeah. is a horror film. Know Sight that going in. We love. Love Kill List, love Sightseers. Um, High Rise. Yeah. Very stylish. I mean, we're just big fans of his. Yeah. But uh, in this one, of course, is the classic 1940 Hitchcock movie. It was Lawrence Olivier and Joan Fontaine. This time it's Army Hammer and Lily James. And Lily James is the, the, the poor lady's maid, the proletarian, who gets thrust into this aristocracy of the rich by this impulsive marriage to Max, Maxim de Winter. And once uh, he takes his shiny yellow suit, (laughs) once he takes her back to the to the estate, which is managed by the stone faced and yeah, Mandalay. And it's managed by the stone faced and icy Mrs. Danvers, played to perfection by Kristen Scott. So good. Yeah. Just from from day one, the unnamed new Mrs. DeWinter. She never gets a name. No. Just like in the first. Darling. Yeah. She has to compete with the memory and the ghost of Rebecca, the Mm -hmm. first wife. And, you know, she has a hard time doing that, obviously. Her welcome is not warm. But the more it goes on, she slowly gets drawn into this mystery of what really happened to the first Mrs. DeWinter. And that's where the film falters, I think. I think early on, it's it's going fine. It looks great. It it's got style. My God, the settings and the costumes, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Army Hammer cuts a dashing, of course, handsome figure. He really does. Yeah, he really does. In the original, I'm much less convinced by the romance in the original uh, and, and than I am here. I think that the, you know, you don't have that same incredibly stiff performance style that mm-hmm. marked films made in the 1940s. And so I do feel like I bought that, and you're right, it's just buttery and beautiful. Yes. But Kristen Scott Thomas, who is maybe one of the most formidable actors working today, <laughs> she really, here. God, she's good. She's so intimidating. You can see how she would just just have people cowering in her way. Yeah. And she kind of just plays along, plays to uh, the new bride's insecurities. Mm-hmm. And you think she's your friend, and then, then she's really not... But and Lily James does. I think this kind of part is natural for her. She's she's naive. She's trusting when she shouldn't be, and mm. she she looks very uh, soft and 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 vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But as and so all's good there. But then as it goes on and you dig deeper into the mystery, I, I found no level of suspense here at all. 
No, I did not think it was very suspenseful. But then also there's the revelation scene and they make some minor changes to the revelation scene. But to be honest with you, there were there were certainly moments in the first that I thought, I don't understand why this is happening right now. This would never happen right now. But I think that those are even more pronounced in the remake where you're just like, because I don't want to give anything away. Right, but, right. But there are times once the mystery is revealed and you're like, okay, why is it possible we're moving forward in this particular direction? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that's, that was even tougher for me to swallow this time around. Yeah, and of course the first one was 1940, so the atmosphere was different. But there was this whole this whole layer of, of sexual anxiety, I think, in the first film that went along with the suspense that is totally missing here. Every time a breadcrumb of the mystery is revealed, I thought it was just like checking off a checklist. Yeah. It was more melodramatic than anything else. Yeah. And then when the big moment occurs and the power in the marriage totally shifts, mm-hmm. I, I didn't buy it. it. I thought it was to, it wasn't earned at all. No. wasn't earned at all. So on its, taken as it's, as it's just its parts, its separate parts, I think it's crafted well, it's well done, it's well made, but... When the inevitable comparisons come to the original, it just, it, it's not there. It's well, not you there. know what, also, I'll be honest with you, Rebecca is, is far from my favorite Hitchcock film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it is a particularly suspenseful movie, and I think it lacks the dark wit of some of his best films. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, That's what I was hoping more from, yes, from Ben Wheatley, exactly. I think. Yeah. But yeah. I think that uh, whether... It doesn't stand up to that, but even if you were never to have seen the original, I just think it peters out. Yeah, I agree. And that is Rebecca, and it is showing now on Netflix. Next up is one that is opening in theaters this weekend. On the trail of a missing girl, an ex-cop comes across a secretive group attempting to summon a terrifying supernatural entity, the Empty Man. Hey, wait. We gotta try it. Try what? Calling the Empty Man. Who's the Empty Man? If you're on a bridge and you find a bottle, you blow into it and you think about the empty man. Oh, come on, Mandy, how old are you? Tell him the rest. On the first night, you hear him. And on the second night, you see him. And on the third night? Well, on the third night, he finds you. movie that's been floating around for a couple of years and I was actually I think most excited to get to see it because um, I love this cast even though they're not big names they're all really really reliable yeah it's been out there since 2018 so that's a bad sign and uh, it's also I understand with especially when you watch the trailer you're thinking all right it's been there for two years they want to get some Halloween cash right here's kind of a a knockoff on Candyman a little bit of the ring you got some Halloween jump scares and kills but then you watch it and realize that's not it at all no it's and plus it's two hours and it's almost two hours and 20 minutes that's so wrong yeah and it's a big slog but there it's it's decent it's just not what you think it is unless you're familiar with the graphic novel right. so based on a graphic novel the uh, it's the feature debut for uh, writer-director David Pryor, who's really, his whole resume is from video, video games, video documentaries and such. And James Badge Dale, I think is very impressive here in the, in the lead role as the ex-cop who's drawn into this mystery. He's, he's still grieving over the loss of his wife and his son, and he's drawn into a mystery of a good friend of his, 
who whose daughter has gone missing. And so that's the mystery. And she goes, and there's this story, this legend about you can summon the empty man when you're on a bridge at night and you find an empty bottle and blow into it and then think about the empty man. That that seems like reaching, yeah. but okay. It does. But, yeah, you th- and then in three days, the empty man comes and finds you. So that's very ring, very candy man, but very. you're not going to get a bunch of kills by this monster at all. It's just a mystery and a rumination on on grief, and then there's these metaphysical aspects and you talk about what happens when your brain itches and things like that there there are a couple of bloody kills but it just goes on and becomes just this slog that needs real it needs a, a much leaner path yeah but yes the cast is good um dale is good um Marin ireland who we loved as the ex-wife in hell or high water yeah she is the friend whose daughter goes missing she's good Stephen Root. Root. I love Stephen Root in every single thing. Cameo, yeah. He's always liked to see my stapler. (laughs) Stephen Root. And actually, Pryor does a good job. There are some creepy, creepy looking moments. There's just not enough of them. It's not sustained. And just be, if you're going to watch it, and it is in theaters, not streaming, just know what you're in for. It's it's not Candyman. It's not The Ring. It's a mystery thriller. And you you could do worse, but, uh, but you could do better. And it's The Empty Man. Next is one we've been looking forward to because we like these filmmakers. Two New Orleans paramedics' lives are ripped apart after they encounter a series of horrific deaths linked to a designer drug with bizarre, otherworldly effects. This is synchronic. If you're watching this, I'm probably trying to convince you of something pretty unbelievable or dead. anything to get her back but this is i mean the next dose could kill you there are things that are far worse than death what happened to him they're not returning the clock keeps ticking down the time is an illusion Yeah, the filmmakers here are Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. You go all the way back. We go back with them. We, uh, we, uh, Spring, I think, was the first one. Oh, Resolution was first, and oh, then Spring. I'm sorry. Resolution. I remember when I saw that, I oh, reviewed yeah. it, and we were writing for the paper. Knew nothing about it, and it just threw me for a loop. Oh, yeah, I'm like, this loved is wild. it so much. I loved Spring just as much. A completely very, very different film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then The Endless. And then The Endless, which was more or less a sequel to Resolution. Resolution. Yeah. This loved one has, it as well. This one is not part of that universe at all. No, not exactly, but it definitely has a lot of the same themes. They seem very preoccupied with time travel. Yeah, we go up, we really go up a couple of notches in the cast. It's Jamie Dornan and Anthony Mackie, their best friends and their paramedics in New Orleans. And they uh, stumble up with, again, we've got a missing missing daughter Mm -hmm. here, and they get on the trail of this designer drug called Synchronic that basically lets you do some time traveling when you take it. Yeah, it's interesting. The way they come across it is that, you know, they just keep being called to these crime scenes uh, as paramedics and uh, just crazy-ass shit when they get there. You just think, <laughs> yeah. how did this even happen? Right. They never even left the room. And it's it's brilliant, really, in the construction like that. It really is. There's so much that it has going for it in terms of the story itself, in terms of a sci-fi, really much more of a sci-fi film than a horror film. And I think like they do in in um, the other two that are more sci-fi, they 
set up a fascinating idea in terms of time and Mm -hmm. the time-space continuum. And they do something that I just don't think we've really seen before. The problem, I think, is that it really lacks the humor. And in particular, the, the humorous chemistry between the leads. So in... Resolution and in Endless. Endless, which actually stars the filmmakers as brothers. Uh, they're, they're, they're two male leads. They're, they're best friends or brothers. You know, and, and the banter is so comfortable, so knowing, so realistic and authentic, and so bitterly funny. And then in, in Resolution... You know, the guy that is chained up in the house, mm-hmm. he's hilarious. He's hilarious. He's hilarious. I know. And so I, I feel like their films have shown that among their many talents is a real knack for writing very funny, believable mm-hmm. dialogue between two male bestie leads. And it is just lacking here. And I don't know if it's the chemistry between the two actors. I don't know. But there's certainly... They can't find any humor in the delivery, absolutely. Yeah, and of course, there's an undercurrent here as well in the in the story that Anthony Mackie's character is facing a a death sentence through illness. Mm-hmm. So that is certainly not funny, uh, and that's why he feels a little bit better about going down the road of this designer drug because he sort of feels like he has nothing to lose, and if he finds this girl. That can be his parting shot. Right. Um, You know, to be honest with you, I also felt like there is, um, to me, sort of an unwelcome tidiness to the story Mm -hmm. in that particular way Mm -hmm. uh, that that I I just think the other three films were more untidy and in a very welcome, refreshing and enjoyable way. I don't want to say I didn't like this movie. Um, I just didn't love it. And I and I hoped that I would because. I love the other three films they've made. Yeah, I didn't love it. I do think I liked it more than you, which is interesting because you liked The Endless more than I yeah, did. Yeah, I did. I, I loved the Resolution. End- yeah. um, I, I loved Spring. You, you li- yeah, and you liked The Endless a little bit more than I did. And I think I liked this one a little bit more than you did, although your concerns are, are valid, mm-hmm. I think. But uh, but still, it's it's I think it's worthwhile and it is streaming right now. It is correct? streaming right now. It's also showing theatrically in a lot of different places. In Columbus, you can see it in like the AMC theaters are yeah. showing it. Nice, and that is Synchronic. Got another remake next. This one is based on Roald Dahl's 1983 classic book, The Witches, and of course the film from 1990. And it tells the story of a seven-year-old boy who has a run-in with some real-life witches. It's The Witches. Grandma was a tough lady with a big heart. And little by little, she brought me out of my sadness. Now, if you feel that you can't go on, darling, I didn't know it. But there was a dark shadow looming nearby. Witches. They're real. And they hate children. Ladies. I have a plan. Andro, the transform a child into a mouse. Whoa! Why are we mouses? Mice? Whatever! Grandma, it's me! Is that you, boy? We'll never let you get away with your filthy evil plot. Who's gonna stop me? Doesn't matter who you are. What you look like, so long as somebody loves you.
This one is currently on HBO Max. It is. The only place you can see it. And I remember when it came up, I wanted you to review it for us because I know a lot of people have more love for the 1991 than I do, but especially you do. I mean, I don't have a problem with Mm -hmm. it. I just don't really have any love for it. I do. And a lot of it is Angelica Houston. And honestly, I think if you ask almost anybody who does have a lot of affection for the Nicholas Rogue 1990 film... It is for Angelica Houston. It's her performance. It's her presence. <laughs> yeah. And it's the reveal, you know, <laughs> because because it was scary. Yeah. You know, it really was. Practical effects and makeup. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. It was so scary. And she she just was such an incredibly impressive presence. And but the, the film itself is not brilliant. It's not great. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun sort of a Halloween tradition, you know, with your kids or whatever. But it's not a brilliant movie. So I didn't feel like it was a bad idea to remake it. And certainly the talent that they bring into it. Anne Hathaway, Oscar winner. Sure. Always good. Yep. Octo- Octavia Spencer, Oscar winner. She plays the grandma this time around. Mm-hmm. Stanley Tucci. He is the hotel manager, which is a, which is a great decision. It was Rowan Atkinson the first time. And then the sort of narration voice He's not physically in the film, but the narration voice of the grown-up version of the of the little boy who's the main character is Chris Rock. Mm-hmm. So you've got a lot of talent working on here, and it was um, Robert Zemeckis directing, so and co-writing and co-writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so Back to the Future, and then a lot of other movies I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> so the truth is, I am not a Robert Zemeckis fan. I'm just not. And, and um, the also interesting thing is, if you look at the producers, both Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuarón shine yeah. on as producers. Yeah. So. Wow. I know. Um, the first thing you're going to notice is the effects. They're not practical anymore. No. They're computer effects, and they have upped the ante a little bit. But you don't feel that that's a good thing. No. Well, here's the thing, though, right? Zemeckis, that's really what he is now known for, right? The Polar Express guy. He is now known for, you know, doing computer effects. And sometimes it's really, really fascinating, like what he did in Flight, right? Denzel Washington, oh, the crash yeah, scene. Glorious. Yeah, yeah. The rest of that movie, <laughs> and I think that's ca- sort of becoming one of the problems. The last several movies he's made, two of them were narrative remakes of documentaries. And then the other, this one is a uh, just a straight up remake. And you wonder to yourself, I know I did with the documentaries. Why? Why are you doing this when in this time, day and age, we movies don't go anywhere. We all have access to all of the originals. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. To remake them, and I figure, okay, well, he's remaking The Witches because he can do so many things, like wizardry, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, all right, if you're going to make a movie about magic and you have magic at your fingertips, I think that this makes sense. 201, (laughs) the scenes that he swapped out practical, practical effects and makeup for CGI are worse than they are in the original. They have less of an impact. They are less scary. They are, you know, they, and, and, and then the other thing is that well, I don't really think the storyline itself is that compelling in the movie, the original The Witches, or in the book. Um, he doesn't do anything to improve upon that. Um, there's a weird introduction, I think, because uh, Octavia Spencer, the family, the, the, the little boy, the, the primary family, they're black, and it's set in the early 1970s in, in Alabama. And so there is a sort of a racist undertone because they go to this very fancy hotel that is that is introduced for one second and then never explored. And mm-hmm. I don't understand why even introduce it if you're not going to dig any deeper than that because it just leaves it as sort of an open wound. Like, what's mm. going on here? Yeah. Stanley Tucci woefully underutilized. Yes, he uh, often is. Yeah, sadly, he is. Because he's great. He is great. And they didn't do more, really, with anything. Mm. They did less with a lot of things. There's a new third mouse for no reason. Um, I mean, actually, there were always three mice, but this one can talk for no reason. It, there's just, I just felt like they didn't do anything I liked. 
so there was no real reason to make it. Yeah. So another remake that doesn't quite measure up, and that is on HBO, and it's PG. So how young do you think you could go with the kids for this? Well, I'll be honest with you. I think it's not nearly as scary as the original, but you thought you thought it was a little scary. Well, I'm, you're going to be the better judge because you know the first one a lot better, but I thought some of the, you know, with Anne Hathaway's scary mouth when she leans yeah. in to the, to the scare, I don't know, maybe the young kids might find that a little... But parents are going to know their kids better. So if your if your kid is, it's hard by to stuff, say honestly because <laughs> you know there are so many people uh, my age and younger who I think were g- truly terrified by the reveal, the Angelica Houston reveal scene. Like it, it really stuck with people. And you know, and a lot of those mice got stomped on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so make your own decisions about your kids. Again, that's on HBO, HBO Max, The Witches. Let's go to a music documentary next. It is a behind-the-scenes look at Bruce Springsteen's creative process with full performances from the E Street Band, in-studio footage, and never-before-seen archival material. It's Bruce Springsteen's Letter to You. All right, what can I say? The greatest thrill of my life is standing behind that microphone with you guys behind me. Let's do it. I'm in the middle of a 45-year conversation with these men and women I'm surrounded by. Faded pictures in an old scrapbook. I started playing the guitar because I was looking for someone to correspond with. And after all this time, I still feel that need to talk to you. All right, East Readers, let's do this thing. He wrote it to me, George. It's a letter to me. (laughs) Well, if you've heard this podcast, you know that we are big Bruce Springsteen fans, and that's pretty much going to be an easy call. If you are, you're going to want to see this if you have Apple TV. It's on Apple TV, and it is a a companion piece to his brand-new album that just came out called Letter to You, and this is basically the making of. Yeah. And it's the band, the whole band in Bruce's studio in New Jersey as they run through the songs. And then it's directed by Tom Zimney, who also directed his Western Stars right. um, documentary, documentary, which we like so much. And that one had vignettes between the songs. This one doesn't have the vignettes, but it does have Bruce talking about the inspirations for the songs. And you see a lot of, uh, as it said in the synopsis there, archival footage from when he was younger, because the one big overriding theme you get about this album is his his looking at mortality. Right. Because he's 70 now. He is, and he realizes that his very first band, the Castiles, mm-hmm. his good friend from, from childhood that he w- was in this band with, a guy named George Thies, just passed away, and he realized he's the last one of yeah. that band. Yeah. And so he wrote a song called Last Man Standing, but it really sets the theme for this movie and what I'm assuming is the theme for the album, and that is mortality, looking back, people that are here and gone, memories and things like that. So it's a fascinating look. If you're a Bruce fan, sure. It's also a fascinating look at the creative process, how an album is put together by these veterans. Mm-hmm. They go in, the band just gets there. They haven't heard the songs yet. They've they got their notepads out. They're making notes. And then how it comes together. And you, you really see now at his age how much... Bruce is very um, clear about how much he appreciates these guys and girls now. But, you know, it's interesting, though, if you saw Western Charts, which we loved, you know, you, you, you didn't get to see much of the actual East, actual East Street band. So right. I think one of the great things about this is seeing him in the creative process with the band that you've known for so long and loved for, loved for so long. But then the other thing that's interesting that you couldn't stop talking about was having six or 70-year-old Springsteen revisit yeah. a couple of the songs that he wrote in his 20s. Yeah, we haven't got the album yet, which I can't believe because it's been out for like six hours. <laughs> uh, 
Two of the cuts on it are songs that he wrote in his 20s. Songs that have been known to longtime fans for a long time through yeah. bootlegs. A uh, song called Song for Orphans and another one, If I Was the Priest. Oh, yeah. And it's back when he was writing so much like Bob Dylan. Big rambly so long. so clearly yeah. influenced by Bob Dylan. And to hear him sing those songs now as a 70-year-old man, I thought it was fascinating. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to get into that more of the album. So, yeah, we liked it. Obviously, if you're a Bruce fan, you're going to want to see it for sure. It's called Letter to You, and it's out now on Apple TV. Next is a struggling restaurant owner caring for a sick mom, finding a bag of cash and a sauna locker while a customs officer gets into trouble when his girlfriend runs off with money he borrowed from a loan shark. Complicated. It's beasts clawing at straws. I love a bag of cash movies. <laughs> I do. I love movies. There's I love movies. There's always a problem with a bag of cash. You gotta leave it. Leave it. Ask Josh Brolin. <laughs> you gotta leave it. Gotta leave it. Bad things happen. Ask Billy Bob Thornton. Oh my and, God, and yes. And the list goes oh, on the and list, on. It does. It goes on and on. So this is one of those. He finds a bag of cash, and it's told in chapters. It's a Korean film, and it's to- and it's in- it's so great to look at. The colors are amazing. The framing is great. The pacing is great. It's told in chapters where you you in each chapter. Oh, you're introduced to a new group of people that are in one way or another connected to this bag of cash. And it's not clear if you're going in sequence, out of sequence. But what's clear is that you're getting a little bit more information every time concerning who did what, who needs this, what's going to happen if they don't get it. And most of the people that you meet are very unsavory and yet fascinating. And this is based on a novel. The writer and director is Young Hoon Kim. This is the first thing that he's done, his first feature. Nice. Really impressive. So it's not brilliant to the degree of something like Parasite, you know, but it's definitely influenced by uh, the Coens. It's definitely influenced by Tarantino. If you're going to steal, those are good places to start. It's a good time. Yeah, and this is streaming now? It is actually in virtual theaters right now, oh, so okay. a little bit harder to find. So you have to do a little bit of searching. Okay, and it's Beasts Clawing at Straws. Let's turn to the latest Shudder original. It's a family moving to a new house to live the dream of the big city, a house where dreams turn into nightmares. This is 32 Malasagna Street. We'll say it again, Shudder's been on a roll. Yeah, they have been. And, you know, um, for me, and I think for a lot of people, haunted house movies work better when what you start off with is a really big family that spent all the money they have moving into this house. <laughs> because right? Because they're so then, trapped. Right. They are trapped. And it's an it's an interesting, you know, metaphor really because it asks about being trapped because of poverty, being trapped because of faith, which in most cases in these films has something to do with the size of your family. Um, you know, being trapped because of your family expectations. I mean, it, it does lead to a lot of great metaphors for the haunting. And this is a creepy movie and it looks great. And it's set in the early 70s, so it's got this really good-looking vintage, you know, and it, which also, again, you know, so was Amityville Horror, so was The Conjuring. So it's it's in the same universe with a lot of these other really classic haunted house stories. And who doesn't love a good haunted house story? I know. It's perfect for Halloween. It is. It's director Albert Pinto, and it's the latest Shudder original and another winner. If you got Shudder, look it up. 32 Malasagna Street. Next is a film set in dystopian Turkey. The government begins installing new TV antennas to homes throughout the country. 
when the broadcast it transmits begins to menace the residents of the apartment complex. It's called the antenna. I don't know how often people say this, but I love Turkish horror movies. Yeah. I really, really do. They can bring it. This is writer and director Orkun Behram, and I hope I pronounced that right. And this was actually written, the review, the written review, you can check it out at madwolf.com. It's written by Rachel Willis. Four stars. She loved it. Yeah. It, you know, what she liked about this was how politically savvy it was, because it is. Mm-hmm. It's got a, lot of, got a lot of Orwell, but it's also got a lot of black ooze. <laughs> um, so it's a good balance of, of creepiness, of political commentary, and of just good old-fashioned horror. Uh, kind of a sci-fi fantasy yeah. to a certain degree. Uh, yeah. Weird one, definitely worth finding. And obviously some political undertones, mm-hmm. so you can read Rachel's review at madwolf.com. And it's this one is streaming now, Turkish horror called The Antenna. And we'll finish by brushing up our Shakespeare. A mysterious new language leads to conflict and rebellion in the sounding. It's my granddaughter, Olivia. She doesn't speak, does she? She can speak. She's perfectly capable. But one day she just stopped talking. Can I come in? There has to be a reason. Spend time with her. But she can't know why you're here. Olivia Williams? I'm Officer Schwartz, Portland Psychiatric Center. She's a danger to herself. According to Dr. Land's notes, you speak Shakespeare. He will put her on a cocktail of pills and shrug her off as a lunatic. This is a highly intelligent woman who's getting worse. To be or not to be? That is the question. Every so often, I will read the description of a movie that we have to screen at some point in the future, and I will realize right away, Kat McAlpine. She is one of our writers. She covered this movie for us. She knows her Shakespeare. She knows her Shakespeare. She actually directed. She directed Romeo and Juliet, which we saw, which was wonderful. And so I always ask her first. And she thought that this was kind of fascinating, flawed, but interesting. It's a young woman who speaks only in lines of Shakespeare. Yeah, and it's the co-writer, the director, and the star, starring as the woman, Liv, is Catherine Eaton. Yeah, a triple threat. She thought she did a great job. Um, it's it's not 100% strong. It's a fascinating concept, pretty well executed. Leaves you with a couple of sort of question marks. But especially if you are interested in Shakespeare, as this filmmaker clearly is, it is worth finding. Yeah, and so again, you can find Cat's Review at MedWolf.com. And The Sounding is another one streaming now. And with that, let's hit up the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Back in the lobby, and that means checking in with Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. the Schlocketeer. I've kind of been out of the loop this this week. I haven't really heard any studio headlines, so what's going on? Uh, There's not a lot of news, but there's some bigger things going on. Uh, the two smaller things up front is the New Mutants is coming to VOD on November 17th, so if anyone missed that, we'll have a chance to watch it then. And Sony sold their LGBTQ holiday rom-com Happiest Season to Hulu. So it's going to premiere on there on November 25th, and that one stars Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, and was directed by Clea Duvall. Oh, so hopefully okay. that'll be good. Yeah. 
And then we have our first casualty in the 2020 streaming wars. Uh-oh. Quibi right. is having its plug pulled on December 1st. I did hear that. that. That I did hear, yeah. They, how long did they last? Just a few months? About six months, I think, by the time they shut her up. Woo. I guess people weren't ready to watch uh, exclusive uh, phone-centric content in short bites. Right. And then moving beyond that, uh, are you ready for some more doomsaying? <laughs> <laughs> well, here it comes. Uh Sony had moved Ghostbusters Afterlife from this summer to March of next year for obvious reasons. And now they've gone ahead and moved it again to June of next year. So I guess the question there is, are they simply looking to give the film some more breathing room? Or is it a quiet vote of no confidence in the viability of early 2021 releases? Mm-hmm. Could really go either way there. And then piggybacking off of that, uh, one more of a long game thing, two blockbusters that were originally set for next year, which would be The Batman and Jurassic World 3, have been pushed to 2022. Wow. And that primarily has to do with the fact that, you know, they're both shooting again right now, but with everyone having to take more precautions, everything's taking way longer. Mm-hmm. And... They need time. They need that extra time to finish the films, and this is happening with a lot of movies right now. And it's going to cause a bit of a bit of a bottlenecking effect. You know, you've got stars that are anchored to multiple franchises, and if they're stuck filming one movie all of this fall and early next year, they can't film the next one yet. So sure. Like, and there's a whole lot of that going on right now. So everything's starting to get pushed on down the line, which might be why Sony went ahead and moved Ghostbusters to summer because things are getting shifted already. And, I mean, it might benefit it. It's To me, it seems like a summer movie. seems like a summer title. I agree, yeah. Uh, a June 2021 release is probably better for it than a March one. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much it for this week. All right, Daniel Baldwin, you can find him at The Schlocketeer and your X-Files podcast. Is that still going? Yep, Discovering the X-Files. New episodes drop every Monday and every Friday, and that's not going to change for the foreseeable future. And you can pretty much find and subscribe to it through any usual podcast outlet that you go through. Nice. The truth is out there. Daniel Baldwin, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, looking ahead to next week, it's Halloween weekend, so we're going to expect a lot of horror, and we're going to get it with Spell. Ooh, and Train to Busan Peninsula. Looking forward to that. Also, Wolf Boy. May the Devil Take You to. His House. Adventures of Mistress Maneater. Ooh, Blood from Stone. Are those all horror movies? I believe they are. They sure sound like them. (laughs) Yeah, I believe they are. So that's a good week. We'll check those out next week. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about any from this week, the remakes, the new stuff, the foreign films, documentary. So uh, let us know. It's always easy to get a hold of us. We're at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F, on Twitter. You can also find us at Mad Wolf Columbus on Facebook and Instagram. And the main website with all of our written reviews and other fun stuff, including our horror movie-only podcast. It's a good time of year to check that out called Fright Club. That's all at madwolf.com. And we thank you for stopping by as always. Do us a favor if you would and subscribe, rate, and review. Until next week, she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap.